I've been counted out many times in my life, as have many of my teammates. I hope we just dig deep and find a way. We will truly be underdogs. Hopefully we can embrace that, and then this thing looks a little different. This is where Wisconsin gathers to talk sports. Packers, Brewers, Badgers, Bucks. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Now, here's your host, Grant Bills. I feel like the theme of this week so far, or at least the theme of the last two days or so, has been, eh, just pay attention to these little things because they might mean something more important down the line. Like this little headline, this little nugget in an article, this little quote might not seem like much, but just pay attention to it. Hold it away. Put it in the back of your mind because it, it might turn into something down the line. Yesterday, we were talking about some of these Packer nuggets, this comment from Rasul Douglas that eh, seems harmless enough, but maybe there's something going on there. That report from Jeremy Fowler and Dan Graziano about things that are coming out of the Packers locker room. I saw Cowherd was even talking about it today. It just seems like a Harmless enough report. Not that unexpected from a team that's lost five in a row now or however many games it is. I lose track. But just pay attention. Maybe a couple weeks, that comes back, and it comes back in a big way. What the Brewers are doing right now, it doesn't seem like the end of the world, but I am paying attention. Yesterday, we talked a little bit at the beginning of the show about how Corbin Burns might be available, and today they declined Brad Boxberger's club option. He's a free agent. Now, as Kurt Hogue, our guy from the Journal Sentinel, explained on Twitter, the Brewers placed him on waivers first. No one claimed him, which signaled to the Brewers that eh, maybe he's not valued quite like we're valuing him on this contract, so they dropped it. Because no other team was, you know, jumping to grab him at this price tag. I want to give the Brewers the benefit of the doubt, saying, well, they think Brad Boxberger's over the hill, and they're going to invest that money somewhere else. But, folks, come on. We know this team. We watch this team. We grew up with this team. Why would we ever give them the financial benefit of the doubt? I very much worry about the Brewers, just based on these couple small things. Steve Sparky Pfeiffer, who's been in Milwaukee radio for a long time, really respects Sparky. He tweeted an hour ago, feels like a sell-off is coming based on everything being reported, and now this, Boxberger News, certainly doesn't feel like competing for a championship at this point. I'm not saying that the Brewers are about to sell, but the couple of little breadcrumbs I've seen based on what, however many years of evidence we have with this team, I worry. I'm concerned. Just file that away. Put it in the back of your mind. This is the Wisco Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills. Tonight's show is going to be outstanding. Tonight's show is going to be so awesome. We're going to talk Packers with Mike Clements at 530. Take your pick of dramatic stories. We'll talk about them all. Oh, yeah, and Mike McCarthy's making his return to Lambo. We can talk about that, too. So many different Packers things to hit with Mike Clements, and I'm glad to have an insider's perspective, somebody who's in Green Bay, somebody who's in that locker room, talks to the players, talks to the coaches. Because with some of these, you know, unsubstantiated reports or uh, anonymous sources, it's not that I don't believe it, but it's nice to get the perspective of someone who is in the reporting business and who's there. So Mike Clemens is coming up at 530. I want to start with the Bucks. do a little NBA lounge. Last night's game was a blast. No Giannis, no Chris, no Drew, no anybody for the Bucks. Went to double overtime. It was a great game. So I want to start with that. We'll fire up a little swing jazz, a little scat jazz music, and we'll talk some NBA. At 4.30 on the nose, we're going to talk with Rick Mixter. Today is the anniversary of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. 47 years ago today in 1975, 29 men were lost and never found. The gales of November came early, immortalized by the voice and the songwriting and that beautiful 12-string guitar 
of Gordon Lightfoot. We're going to talk with Rick, who's made countless documentaries for the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. He's written books. He's dove over 100 Great Lakes shipwrecks in scuba gear and in submarines, including the Edmund Fitzgerald itself in 1994. And it was his expedition that actually uncovered the first crewman who up until that point, almost 20 years from 75 to 94, had gone completely undiscovered. He was one of the first to discover a crewman almost 530 feet down on the bottom. So we're going to talk with him. And I talked to him about two weeks ago, recorded the conversation. We cover it all. Some of the wrecks that he's dove. We talk about Great Lakes weather patterns and exactly what goes on up there this time of year, every November, and some rich history and people and, and folks that he's spoken to over the years, whether it be engineers and shipyards and people who were a part of rescue missions. And it's just a really interesting conversation. And I don't know about you, but I'm okay with getting away from the Packers for 20 minutes and talking about something else. So that's coming up. But like I said, I want to start with the Bucks, and we have some time to go back and forth on the phone as well. 608-796-2558 if you want to give me a call or a text. And you can find me on Twitter as well, at Wisco Grant. I was thinking about putting together a big NBA lounge today. Let's just do the Bucks. Last night's game was awesome. Double overtime. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is ridiculous. No Giannis, no Chris, no Pat, no Drew Holiday. So the Bucks had one true starter, Brooke Lopez, which is, just fun, which is funny. It's just funny. Brooke Lopez is an objectively funny player. Worldwide Wob, if you're on Twitter and you're on NBA Twitter, which, by the way, Twitter could go dark at any moment. I don't know if you saw the stories about what's going on on Twitter today, but... Let's count our blessings and enjoy it while we have it. Worldwide Wob, who's a big presence on NBA Twitter last night, tweeted out his league pass menu. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, when there's a bunch of games on, there were 13 games last night. He had Bucks Thunder ranked 10th out of 13th. And the game was electric. It was awesome. Bucks fans, life sure is sweet right now. Every game is great, one way or another. Either Giannis plays, and we have the privilege and the pleasure of watching the best player in the world, or Giannis sits... And now, right, Chris Middleton is injured. And Drew sat last night, too. And we get to watch some of these young guys. And we get entertaining games like the Young Thunder versus some of these young players for the Bucks, led by Brooke Lopez, which, again, is funny. It's important that the Bucks play games like they played last night, where Marjan Bochamp gets extended run. And Javon Carter got a lot of run. He had 36 points, for God's sake. Grayson Allen got a lot of run. Bobby Portis got to play a little bit more than he normally would. It's important that the Bucks play games like they did last night. Think of the type of contending team the Bucks are. This is important, right? If you think back over the last decade or so, or even back further, but my memory is best over the last 10 years, there's a lot of different types of contenders, right? You have your Spurs, homegrown, through the draft, draft and develop, Miami Heat, more super team type of thing, right? The Warriors, which are a little bit of both, a little super team, little homegrown, draft and develop, lots of different types of contenders. The Raptors were a flash in the pan, right? The Bucks have Giannis. And that's their meal ticket. And their job as a contending team is to surround him. And they've done so by drafting and developing, essentially with Chris Middleton. I know they didn't draft him, but they developed him. Brooke Lopez, they brought in on a mid-level exception, and he's become an incredible player for them. Drew Holiday, they made the trade, went and got him. But the rest of the team, they're not like the Miami Heat with LeBron or the Golden State Warriors with Steph in that they can just bring in year 16 Ray Allen, right? That player's not coming to Milwaukee. Right now, they might do okay with mid-level free agents, but they're not getting the big-name players chasing rings late in their career, at least not yet. The Bucks are the type of contending team that needs to find guys that other teams have overlooked, guys at good value, bring them in, develop them, and keep them here and retain them. Right, Bobby Portis, for example. Bobby Portis was not this 
heralded free agent. We knew him mostly as the guy who socked Nikola Miritich in the face. He signed in the same offseason with Tory Craig, DJ Augustine, and I remember talking to Justin Garcia, our guy from the Bucks Radio Network. He's like, man, Bucks fans are going to love Tory Craig. Like, Bobby Portis was not even the most heralded free agent signing of that period, of that year. But look at what he's done over the years. Got a little bit better, embraced his role, expanded his role, added to his game, and the Bucks have turned Bobby Portis into something that he never was previous. And Bobby himself. I'm not taking anything away from Bobby. Bobby's done it too. But the Bucks brought him in, identified something there, and made it work. Pat Connaughton. Pat Connaughton signed when Bud got here in 2018. He's a different player now. I barely knew who he was. Like, I, like I was in Portland, played at Notre Dame. That's right. He took it up a whole nother level in the playoffs last year. We would groan when he would jack up shots in the regular season in 2020, 2021. And then he found it in the playoffs and turned it into this just ace shooter. Which is why I want to talk about Javon Carter. Enter Javon Carter, who's getting extended run with the injuries, and last night with the missed time, Giannis and Drew Holiday were sitting. He just needs to get more comfortable on offense. Last night was a great start. 36 points, comfortable from shooting in different spots. If the Bucks can run a backcourt defensively, of Drew Holiday, Wesley Matthews, and Javon Carter, not all at the same time, but throughout the game, if they can have one of those guys on the court at all times, <laughs> good luck. Have fun. Enjoy that. Malcolm Brogdon. Or Marcus Smart, who's playing point guard for the Celtics. Or Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell for the Cavs. You get to deal with that for seven games? Have fun. There's no reprieve. None. But for that to work, Javon Carter has to be a willing shooter. He has to be a willing participant on offense. Because you can't play a non-shooter in the playoffs. You have one guy on the floor that can't shoot. That becomes an attack point for the defense. Like, that's what swings the series. The playoffs are nuts. Any little weakness is put under the microscope. So Javon Carter has to be a willing participant in the offense for this to work with him. Seth Partnow wrote about this in his book. We had Seth on last year when the mid-range theory came out. It's an awesome book. You should get it. It Teaches you about analytics and the way that basketball is measured and all these different metrics. It's really good. I was trying to bring it in today because I wanted to find this section, but I forgot it at home. (laughs) And I didn't want to go home to get it. He wrote about, and I can paraphrase, he had a chapter on how it's better to play someone who is a terrible shooter than a player that doesn't shoot at all, right? It's better to play a player that has a jump shot that sucks than a player that doesn't have a jump shot at all and won't shoot, right? Think of it this way. You're a contending team and your fifth starter is a shooter that stands in the corner and plays defense, P.J. Tucker type, that that role, right? You can have in that role a 30% shooter, which isn't great, or a non-shooter. Think Andre Roberson, right? Great defender. He doesn't shoot, but great defender. No, no, no. I'd rather have an average defender and someone who shoots a measly 29, 30%. Because it's not really about the shot and whether or not the shot goes in. The guy in the corner is probably the fifth best offensive player, P.J. Tucker. Or in this case, if we're talking about Javon Carter, it's not about the shot. It's about the defense and how the defense has to play, right? So if the Bucks are sending a lineup out and their worst offensive player is Javon Carter, Javon Carter needs to be a willing shooter. He's got to shoot because that forces the defense to space out and respect him, right? Versus if they run some on, again, Andre Roberson is a great example. Oh, great defender, great player. Yeah, but he doesn't shoot. He, it's not that he can't shoot, it's that he doesn't. And therefore a defense can leave him. A half-assed closeout is better than no closeout at all. So if Javon Carter can be a willing participant on offense, Bucks are going to be nasty because they have a lot of guys they can rotate in the backcourt, and it takes some of the load off Drew Holiday. Bochamp, should mention him. He had a career-high 19 points, 8 rebounds. 
Our guy Bucks Film Room, Brian Sampson, was correct earlier this week when he tweeted, a little bit of a wet blanket, but I love Brian. I will back him up. It's going to be a journey. Going to be ups, going to be downs. He's a kid. I'm just glad he's playing and playing within the normal flow of the game. Garbage time isn't a place where a player can learn because you're not playing in a competitive game with a natural rhythm. You're going out there and you're just jacking up shots to jack up shots. I love how Coach Bud has integrated Marjan Bochamp into the rotation. The other night when they're playing the Wolves on Friday, he didn't have to bring Marjan Bochamp back in at the start of the fourth when things got tight, but he did. Bochamp made some nice plays and was a big reason why they were eventually able to pull again away for you know the second or third time. So I love how Bochamp's getting played. It's going to be a journey, but I love that he's getting run. Javon Carter, willing shooter. Marjan Bochamp getting good minutes. Last night's game was fun. Thriller. Double overtime. Let's talk a little bit about the Bucks defense coming up next. And then we'll talk Edmund Fitzgerald with Rick Mixter coming up at 4.30. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills on Twitter at Wisco Grant. This website should be going dark any day now, so follow me while you can. Let's tweet while we can. At Wisco Grant, the talk and text line 608-796-2558. Josh in Menominee. This has been waiting a year for tonight's show and it's finally here, so happy let's go. Yeah, tonight's going to be great. Rick Mixter is going to be here in a couple of minutes. Documentarian, diver, explorer, author, we're going to talk about one of the Midwest's greatest mysteries, the Edmund Fitzgerald. Today on the anniversary, the 47th anniversary, great tradition we have on this show. John Texan says, hey, Grant, I see the Packers have a bunch of primetime games coming up. I hope they get flexed off. Why does a crummy team deserve to be on? Also, I have been to some of the Gales of November conferences in Duluth, including seeing Gordon Lightfoot, so I share your interest. Thank you. Yeah, it's a fun topic. We could talk about Packers drama for another half hour, but I'd rather talk about something fun. Jason, Lower Tainer Lake, speaking of gales of November, how are the waters on Tainer? Probably, probably pretty mellow, I would guess. It says, please help me understand Coach Bud's love affair with Wesley Matthews. Excuse me. Just because he hustles doesn't make him a good player to have on the court, especially to close out games. He's short, slow, and can't jump. Um, Wesley Matthews is a limited player at this point in his career, but he's a dude that can play for you in a playoff series, right? He can bother Jason Tatum. He can bother opposing point guards. He's got a hard nose, and he can knock down three-point shots, and he's comfortable in big spots. Now, a Thursday night against the Thunder? Eh, I don't know that Wesley Matthews adds that much, but in high-intensity games, he can absolutely play. And I think the Bucs are going to manage his minutes this year because I think they want him healthy uh, and available come that time. Alec and Menominee says, Bucs are a breath of fresh air. I was watching the OKC stream, and the announcers were so excited that they took the Bucs to double OT. Like, they think they have a good team. They're oblivious to the big Milwaukee three not playing. Yeah, I mean, the Thunder are just on a different timeline. I love Josh Giddy. He's so smooth. He's really fun to watch. And Shea was unbelievable. The Thunder, both teams have a claim that they should have won last night. I think the Thunder got a little unlucky with a couple of non-calls and calls. And if the Bucks just make some free throws or guard an inbound pass, like, they win this game in regulation easily. Just a wild game. It's a Wednesday night game in October, November. Really won't mean that much. Cornucopia Roller, 608-796-2558. What's up, Corn? Grant, I feel like I had to call in on, on the anniversary of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <sighs> um, credit to you for doing this anniversary show. 
and uh, spreading the word, the good word. The good word. Well, that's the thing. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, ah, oh, because I, I talked with Rick, who's going to be our guest a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, man, I hope some crazy breaking news doesn't happen that I need to talk about. It's like, oh, no, the Packers have lost five in a row. Perfect. Like, I, this is this is perfect. We should do a full two hours on this. I, I would agree. Just play the song on a loop. Maybe break it <laughs> lyric by lyric, line by line. Oh, show the significance of, of Gordon Lightfoot's words. And then go from there. We should have tried to get Gordy on. He was playing at Eau Claire not that long ago. I, I feel like he'd do it. I just don't know how to get in touch with the guy. Does, do you think he owns a cell phone? Mm, good question. He's from Canada. He's an old man. I feel like you have to own a cell phone in today's day and age, but I, I don't feel like he would be too keen on using it. It doesn't strike me as a type. No, no, not at all. I wonder if he's on Twitter. Um, I'll check. I doubt that. But you never know. Worth reaching out. Maybe slide him a DM. Mm. Big fan. Interesting. Although these days you don't know. This might be a fake account. I don't know. A fake Gordon Lightfoot account with what Twitter's doing today. Yeah. Yeah. What would you think about the yeah, Bucks last you, night? You, Real quick. Or what were you going to say? Sorry, I cut you off. Uh, are you hung up on the, the whole Twitter thing with, the, the you know, these blue check marks floating around? No, because I can look at handles and see if an account is fake. It's just so dumb. Like, what do we... It's just so unnecessary. It is dumb. Yeah. Um, that Le- the LeBron James one got me for a split second yesterday. <laughs> my uh, my antenna has been up now. I just I don't know. I miss how Twitter used to be. You'd have fake accounts, but they wouldn't be verified, so it would really separate the the knobs from the normal people. It's like if you got got by Sports Talk Barry, that's on you. There's no blue check mark, but now there's blue check marks, so everybody's really got to start focusing. Absolutely. But Bucks game, thought it was a good win. Uh, wasn't able to watch much of it, just being out of market. But, oh, um, yeah. you know, good, good, always good to win with the B team. Uh, Marshawn Beauchamp had a great game. Um, I'm hearing a lot of hot takes from, from close Bucks friends that are saying this guy could be the next Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> is, that, is that too hot? Probably, yeah, probably. I mean, he could be. Sure, sure. Yeah, anyone could be the next Kawhi Leonard. I, he seems to have an attitude that he belongs out there, and he seems way more natural than Jordan War ever looked or DJ Wilson ever looked. So I'll give him that. At this point in his very young career, he gives me more promise than any Bucks rookie of like the last five or six years. Thon Maker too. I agree. I, I, I still think that you know Rashad Vaughn just never got his never got an <laughs> uh, even chance. He needed a better system. Jason Kidd didn't know how to use him. I will take that to my grave. I love that take. He he would have thrived in Bud's system. Oh Let's be real. God. He's thriving in the G League right now. Okay, Corn. I got to move on. Thanks for the call. Yep. Yeah. No problem, Grant. Have a good one. Yeah, that is our guy, Cornucopia Roller, who is uh, an Edmund Fitzgerald appreciator. I see him in, tweeting about it. 608 796 Take a break here in a sec. Elk Mound Nick texts in. Says, I teach elementary school, and I had my students do a research project about the Fitzgerald. Started it by playing the song. Well, there's no better way to start it. Happy anniversary. Excited to see some basketball at American Family tomorrow night. Go Bucky. I saw videos of the media game that they had. I want to go get some shots up at American Family Field. That looked really cool. I don't need to go to a game there, (laughs) but it'd be cool to get some shots up. In a court in the middle of the Brewers Stadium. That's pretty cool. I'm surprised the Brewers are paying the extra it's going to take to keep the lights on for the next couple of nights to have a practice there. And I'm surprised the Brewers are springing for that. You think they're char- they're got to be charging the players for parking? Oh, yeah. 
charging them extra at the water utility to use the bathrooms. Brewers are making a couple extra bucks on this. You know it. Let's take a break. Come back, speak with Rick Mixter as we remember the Edmund Fitzgerald 47 years later. This is a really cool interview. Do not miss it. I had a blast talking to him. I learned a ton. That's coming up next. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. A freighter carrying a crew of 29 disappeared on Lake Superior during a severe storm last night, and so far, no survivors have been found. The freighter, the Edmund Fitzgerald, was transporting iron ore when it ran into high winds and 25-foot waves. My name is Grant Bills. Take a little break. Talk about something more fun than the Packers or the Brewers having a potential fire sale that nobody really wants to admit that that's coming. Had a privilege of speaking with Rick Mixter a couple of weeks ago, who's dove countless wrecks in the Great Lakes, over 100 wrecks, made documentaries for the Outdoor Channel, Discovery Channel, PBS, has written books, including a book called Tattletale Sounds, which just came out. He was nice enough to send me a copy because that's what Midwesterners do. He's a youper. What a nice guy. Two-part interview. We're going to listen to the first part now where we talk about the Great Lakes in general, talk about some other things that he's written about and researched, and then we get into the fits and obviously his time down in submarine looking at the wreck. Here he is, Rick Mixter. Rick Mixter is here. Actually, the first time I ever heard your name, the way you were introduced, you were on 13 on your side, which I think is ABC out of Grand Rapids. And the anchor introduced you by saying... If there was a Mount Rushmore of Michigan maritime historians, Rick Mixter would be on it. And I said, I didn't think I'd ever hear someone in that field described that way, but I loved it. I was like, I want to see if I could track that guy down. I think I cried and called my mother when I heard that <laughs> intro. So yeah, that's a, that's very gracious of them. But there are certainly historians who are much better who deserve a place on that Mount Rushmore than yeah. I do. Yeah, well, that's funny. And being a sports show host, it's a way that I love to like rank people and things. And I was like, I've never heard someone use a Mount Rushmore of Great Lakes researchers. But now that I know that there is one, I, I want to talk to someone who's firmly on there to tell you really briefly about like what I what I do. So I host the sports show, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the Great Lakes are one of my favorite things. We go up there a couple of times every year and we make a point to it. And Lake Superior is it for me. The West has the mountains, the coasts have the oceans, and there are these things that when you travel and you see them, they take your breath away. In the Midwest, to me, that's Lake Superior. And every time I go up there, I, I've seen it a dozen times or more, and every time I go up there, it takes my breath away. And honestly, it's in all kinds of different moods, too. It goes from being beautiful and crystal clear, where you know we used to swim in as kids, to just really angry and destructive. And um, yeah, it's just as varied as the shorelines that we see with the, the rocky shores and the, the, the beautiful beaches. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's the most grandest. It's got the superior name for a reason. Is there a, a thing that you have covered or an individual that you've researched or talked to, or, or what's the one thing throughout your career that is, has taken your breath away the most? And it might not be on Lake Superior, as obviously you've done work on all of them. Oh, and I've been lucky. I dove the Edmund Fitzgerald in a summary in 1994 so you know that, that it's not at the top because quite honestly every time I, I visit a shipwreck from the 1940 gale that took down three big freighters um, to see those wrecks to touch the Novodoc or the Annecy Minch 
uh, what's left, or any of the 1913 wrecks, too, the Regina, the Price, the Wexford. Um, they're slowly finding all of these wrecks now, and each time I make that connection, it's special. So it's hard to put them all in order. I wanted to ask you about the 1913 storm. Because when I started looking into some of your work and watching some of your stuff, it's like, I've never heard about this. I can't fathom what life was like for the, everyone who lived around the lakes and was involved living and working there, what happened during that storm. So I wanted to ask you and, and hear you describe that a little bit. Absolutely. And as you know, as a broadcaster, the most exciting part is to be able to capture those stories actually live from somebody who's been there. And as I started my journey on, in, on researching these shipwrecks, to actually find two survivors from the 1913 storm is unparalleled. I just really didn't think, <clears throat> excuse me, that I'd find um, two guys. One was at the wheel. Ed Kanabi was on the H.P. Hawgood. And he talked about seeing four of the freighters that were lost on Lake Huron. This is a lake that was just devastated by two different storm systems that came in. And so Kanabi saw the Regina, the Price, the Wexford, the Isaac M. Scott, all on his way up to the thumb where the captain ordered them to turn around and then talked about the mountainous waves trying to tip them over as they did make that journey back. So to hear it through him, I mean, that hair on my arm just stood right up. And then to hear a story of a young man that was going to take just a joyride on a freighter, his his uh, best friend's dad was a captain on the turret cape, and he barely made it through the storm on Superior, sailed through. There was no place to hide in the St. Mary's River or at the Sioux Locks. They had to keep going because of the crowds of vessels that were there. He sailed right into the bottom part of the storm and almost got killed on Lake Huron. So it's just amazing to hear from those guys guys and to hear how horrible the storm was where it just you know was burned into their minds i was watching one of your lectures the other night and you spoke about one of the captains that was involved uh and it might have been of the arthur m anderson so we're talking about the 70s you know moving forward a couple of decades but you made a comment about how you don't sail the great lakes for a long time without knowing the weather and, and knowing meteorology what kind of circumstances have to come together for a storm like 1913 or 1940 or even the one that took the fits in the mid-70s What's incredible is right now in 2022, we're still trying to figure out why these lakes do this during especially the fall system. We know that they heat up the cold lakes. The Lake Superior is about 35 degrees at the bottom. And during the summertime, we at least get the surface layer that heats up. So during the fall, they try to evaporate as that heat tries to dissipate as the snow comes in. So imagine all that moisture coming up. And then you get these gulf storms with this thick, thick, you know, heavy weather that comes up that's warm colliding with the Arctic fronts out of the Canada. And it just creates these weather bombs that just devastate the Great Lakes. So we see these in the 1800s. And, and really, my research started in 1905 because that's when I could reasonably find photographs and the pieces that I need to tell the story visually for a television, you know, and documentary. So 1905, the big ones, 1913, 1940. And then we go into the, the super freighters, you know, the Fitzgerald, the Morrell, and the, and the uh, Carl Bradley. It's funny how in the Midwest, you know, these storms, they live on, like, I, I don't remember exactly the year, but talking to my grandparents, even my parents, because it wasn't that long ago, the great Halloween snowstorm of, you know, whatever year it was. And you hear about it, and it's just, you don't need to describe it in, in any more detail than that. People know exactly what you're talking about. And the Armistice Day storm of 1940 is similar. And how does that stack up to, obviously, the storm of 1913? And a little more recent, were you able to talk to more people who were involved in that one and, and kind of 
kind of give us the rundown there. Sure. 1913 came in and it was really significant with 60 mile an hour winds that raged for 16 hours straight. So here's just a continuous storm and then followed by a second storm that caught a lot of captains off guard. They thought the barometer was going back up again, using that meteorology to determine whether or not the storm was over and they got slammed by another storm. Now going to 1940, where the winds are now 126 miles an hour. They rage through and destroy a bridge in Tacoma, Washington, and literally shake it to pieces. And it comes up the lake and slams into three different freighters, the Minch, the Davik, and the Novodok. And unfortunately for the Davik, it flips over in deep water. No one survives. The Minch is ripped into two pieces, and the decks are completely cleaned off. So there's no place to hide, and the grain cargo and the men are all discovered on the beaches, you know, literally north of Muskegon all the way to Pentwater. So it was devastating. And I was lucky enough to find, um, as you mentioned, more people were around, 17 survivors on the Novodok, and I found two of them, the fireman who was in the back of the ship and then the wheelsman who was at the helm. And just to hear their accounts of this storm that literally blew the portholes out of the Lansing Shoals lighthouse and then devastated these freighters, pushed the little tiny Novodok right on a sandbar. And they were stuck there for two nights where the guys in the back were up to their knees in freezing cold water. You know, think about November 11th, 1940. And the Coast Guard were busy. They were trying to get a car ferry they went aground the city of Flint. Uh, There were two fish tugs that were missing and uh, it really wasn't the Coast Guard's finest hour because even then the uh, Coast Guard cutter Escanaba was down. It was being refitted for the war that was uh, now starting to take over and and unfortunately they weren't there for the rescues. So it was a bad time um, for people to be on the lakes and we lost 60 sailors in 1940. Well, and I've heard, you know, and seen in some of your videos with interviews, they just, they don't have this fleet of ships on standby for when the weather gets bad to just go sending out you know they're talking to you know buoy tuggers or you know small fishing tugs it's like well can you go out and look and it's like man i you know, it's not like they have this fleet of Coast Guard ships just at the ready to go out and, and get involved when things get bad. It gives you a true respect. I, I'm very lucky to know I'm a descendant of the lifesaver from Muskegon. Um, he's an actual great grandfather that was there. These are guys that's motto was to you have to go out. You don't have to come back. They would row in boats, sometimes 20 miles out in the middle of the lake to rescue people and then come back. That was the predecessor to the Coast Guard, which, of course, now the Coast Guard, they definitely have have the technology, these cutters, you know, gleaming cutters that are over 180 feet long in the cases of the the Sundu. And uh, we see the Acacia that went out, the Bramble that went out in the the Daniel J. Morrell storm. Um, Of course, the Woodrush during the 1975 storm of the Fitzgerald. And now helicopters, too, which are, you know, we've got two different bases that can reach out any point on the lakes and use the technology of finding, you know, ships that may be in distress. Now we can use EPIRBs and satellites and radio communication that, of course, they didn't have in 1940. Um, they had bits of radio in 1940, but uh, of the ships lost, none of them had radio. little background with Rick. We're going to come back in three minutes and hear the rest of the conversation about his dive to the fits and his interviews with individuals on the Arthur M. Anderson and on the Woodrush and these other captains that were part of the original search party to go out and look for the boat and obviously what he's learned years later and then about 20 years later in 94 when he had the chance to dive the wreck and discover a crew member. And we're going to hear all that. We'll be back in three minutes with Rick Mixter on the Wisco Sports Show. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Uh. 
Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills. Appreciate you hanging out. Going to get back into some sports stuff after 5 o'clock. Mike Clemens here at 530. Right now, celebrating, commemorating, remembering the 47th anniversary of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And this year, we got a heavy hitter. Rick Mixter is here. Author, documentarian, filmmaker, diver, pilot. He's dove countless shipwrecks, over 100 shipwrecks all over the Great Lakes, not just in Superior, most notably the Fitzgerald in 1994. And it was his crew in conjunction with the Coast Guard in the making of a documentary that discovered the first missing crew member. And we're going to hear some more of those stories right now. Let's get back to Rick. We're talking with Rick Mixer, who's an explorer, author, diver, writer. And I want to talk before we're done about some of the works and where we can find some of your stuff. I want to talk about the fits. But in reading and digging into your work, it's like, okay, there's there's a whole library of history here. Um, and I wanted to ask you about a couple of those other situations with the fits, even before it ever went on its final vo- voyage. And we can talk about the storm and the song and, and all of that. You know, what blew me away in watching, especially some of your videos and some of this footage that you unearthed was the ship being made at the shipyard, even yes. looking at pictures and, and hearing people talk about it. You can't, I, I didn't grasp how big the ship was. You, you almost have to see it being put together to understand how massive it was. And, and I really lucked out in that footage. I was the first to put footage in a documentary of the Fitzgerald being built. Um, it turns out that because Northwest Mutual had you know built the ship, $8 million price tag, it was an insurance company, they wanted it filmed. They they had, uh, you know, and it was going to be the largest yeah. really freighter ever launched on the Great Lakes in 1958. So I was lucky it was made. It was just unfortunately hidden in a library. It just said 301 GLEW and nobody knew what it was except yeah. I realized it was great. Lakes Engineering Works, Hall 301, which was Fitzgerald, the, the last of three freighters built in Michigan after a long legacy of building them. So you had to see that footage to see how they built it in subsections, to actually look at the crane and then interview a guy that was on the gantry crane, another guy that was a chipper, another one that was actually drilling the holes uh, to put rivets in the very bottom of the Fitzgerald. It really made the story come alive. And to have them even watch the footage, that again makes those connections that you just can't get from a book for me to see them talk about what it was like to turn around every night and see more freighter up there and building a ship faster than any other ship in Michigan. It was three months faster than they built the William Clay Ford, which was the predecessor, Hull 300 from GLEW. So it it was interesting to hear their stories uh, in there and, and even some theories that maybe it was the construction that caused the problems. Yeah, and I heard, you know, some conversations you had with those individuals. They wanted to quickly put that to bed. It was like, no, 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 no. We we put all the time into this. The story that really grabbed me, and I think it was from one of the lectures of yours that I watched, was when they launched it in or they rolled it in or, or whatever the technical term is, right off of the slip and into the water, then the individuals had to go down into the cargo hold and listen for running water. And you see pictures of the Edmund Fitzgerald sitting in the water, and you don't realize unless you see it out of the water how massive it is. And I just imagine someone lowering themselves into a dark, just vast cargo hold underwater, essentially. And you're listening like, oh, go make sure it's not leaking. That's pretty wild. Oh, and Ed Domansky says, if you hear running water, you're going to hear running footsteps. I mean, yeah. he, he said he'd be out of there, but he really did believe that they, you know, they did a good job. And many of those those welds that they did that were a production weld, a faster weld, um, were x-rayed and checked. I mean, they're supposed to be. Um, we just see a lot of um, accusations that come out later by the shipkeeper, the, the cook, Red Bergner, who talks about 
how he saw damage, how when they put the bow thrusters in the front, the keel was loose and they took the, even the, 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 the head guy from uh, the shipping company, Columbia Transportation, through there and pointed it out. And then you can look at the Coast Guard reports and actually go through the paperwork where you see it was repaired and where the hull was loose. And you've got to wonder, you know, did it become loose again? You know, was that part of what they saw? And, and certainly Red Bergner really believed that. You know, it's amazing thinking about how large the ship is and then trying to ponder and and imagine the conditions that had to, you know, exist to put a ship down that quickly. It's not like it's like you watch Titanic, right, and how it slowly kind of sank into the water. The fits had to break in half and go straight down. And I mean, you've seen the wreck and I want to ask you about it in a minute, but the wreck hit the ground so hard that it bent all of this cold rolled steel you know, can you describe or maybe try to imagine and put us there what the weather was like and what we would have seen and heard on the deck of the ship before it went down? Absolutely. We're lucky because Captain Cooper was nine miles behind them as they closed the distance when they reported the damage that it had um, vents that were missing. So these are ballast tank vents that are now pouring eight inch holes in the deck, at least two to, you know, quantify as being uh, several vents that were lost and all that water coming in the hatches that the coast guard believed were leaking as well. They checked all kinds of ships afterwards and realized that even when they were tightened down, they weren't working as, as efficiently as they thought they would. And the damage underneath the water proved that many of those clamps weren't dogged down. And that's not a popular thing as, as you know, we talk about it, but the size of the ship is incredible. When you get down and you look through a porthole in a submarine and the E in Edmund Fitzgerald blots out the size of the porthole, you realize that you're looking at something that's just massive. I, I've seen big freighters underwater. The Emperor at Isle Royal rivals, you know, it's 500 feet long. There's definitely big freighters down there. But to go in a submarine, see it upright on the bottom and the color is still intact, the name's still there, the damage still there, it's really sobering. You get very excited about seeing the most famous ship wreck on the Great Lakes, and then it just becomes sobering where you realize that's a tomb for 29 guys that, you know, never made it off the ship. So it, it's definitely a roller coaster of emotions as you go down and see it, but the size is definitely something you take away. Put us in that sub. You're 500 feet down. It's dark. It's cold. You know, what is the mood like for everyone involved, and what are you guys talking about and saying as you look at this wreck, you like 500 plus feet down in, in Lake Superior? And again, I'm so lucky because we're in journalism, because we're broadcasters, everything gets recorded. And when I went down, I probably would have forgotten most of it, but my book wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't had something recording everything that was said and picking up details even now, almost 30 years since I dove it. Um, it's incredible. We, we started off where, you know, it just got really dark as you pass 200 feet. All of a sudden, the, the light of the sun won't even go through the crystal waters of, of Lake Superior. As you get to 300 feet, now you need sublights. But we left them off till we got near the bottom. And as soon as we got to the moon, the bottom, it looked like a moonscape. It was all this very weird silt and lumpy, you know, soil or, or not soil, but it'd be almost like beach sand that's down there. Um, but very silty. And if you touch down too far, a cloud cloud would come up and then you could see little tracks where the sculpins and maybe burbot had been down you know even 500 feet down 
So it's very dark. You kick on the lights, and then we were lost for 15 minutes trying to find the shipwreck. When finally we're going forward, I realized I was on the shipwreck. It was buried into a hillside on the bottom, and it went right up into where we saw the second and first hatch and a huge rip, a crevasse that's torn into the ship where the spar deck actually tore away from the side of the ship. So it was instant, wow, I'm on the Fitzgerald now, and I think the pilot even said, hey, welcome to the Edmund Fitzgerald. So it, it was exciting. It was sobering to see blankets hanging out of the windows, to look into a porthole and to think, just like every expedition that's been down there, the Coast Guard, I, I have tapes of all the Coast Guard recordings, and they all felt, you know, is there people going to be looking back at me? You know, I mean, what's that going to be like? Um, and it, it was more just because the 29 guys had vanished in the modern day, 1975. How was it possible that every one of those bodies were secure, were hidden somewhere, um, we thought, in the wreck? But, of course, the dive right after mine, we found a human figure on the bottom. It was uh, just very, very sobering for us to know that, that this is a grave site and that uh, finally one of those sailors had been found. Last thing, uh, one of my, my favorite people that was interviewed and, and the favorite things that I saw. And I think he was in your Edmund Fitzgerald investigations. And then it was referenced in um, something else that I read and maybe a lecture that I watched was Captain Hobaugh of the Woodrush telling oh, stories yeah. about what it was like to go back. And if I remember correctly, he went back. I don't know if it was a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you know, after it had went down and, and they went to go try to try to find it or to explore it or whatever. And they hit some really bad uh, weather. And he said, like, the lake was angry, like as if this was my wreck, you're not going to touch it. And the anecdote that I, you know, that made me really go, wow, was some of the buoys that they had. He estimated that they were pulled underwater as far as 200 feet and just crushed. And I was like, OK, so even removed from that storm that took the original boat down, you know, going back and, and being at that site all of these years later, it's still just a really harsh environment. On oh, Hobaugh, you know, he had more time over the wreck than anybody. He was the ship that came out to search for the Fitzgerald. He was there when the P3 Orions found the ship and marked it with a buoy. They lost it again, and another P3 had to come back in. And um, so he came back out six months later, and that's when that storm greeted them and again crushed the buoys that were on their target so that they could use the ship. They were going to use them to moor and pull the ship around to explore with the robot underwater so yeah it is it, to hear these different personalities has been the thrill for me my my findings in three different documentaries now a cd-rom on the fitzgerald and now my brand new book i i literally it's not my observations other than my my sub ride it's the the joy of sharing the people who've actually been there that built the ship that sailed the ship that you know looked for survivors that um, quite honestly, we're right behind the Fitzgerald. You know, those things are all very interesting to me. And to be able to bring that to people is a real thrill for me so that they can come up with their own conclusion. Yeah. So tell us about the new book that is is brand new. You said you were just getting some copies. And then what do you want to do next? What are you working on or, or what's your goal for what um, comes next for Rick Mix? Well, the, the new book is right here. It just just arrived. In fact, you've got a scoop because it just arrived uh, last week and I haven't talked about it at all. Tattletale Sound. I took the name right from Gordon Lightfoot, who's our patron saint of uh, all things maritime. Um, the wind and the, the rails made a tattletale sound. It just really fit. 
for a book that goes behind the scenes and really tattles on each of the expeditions. I don't talk a lot, a lot about the crew. I, I think because it's already been done so well with all the other books. Hemming's book um, and Schumacher's book are fantastic reads on who those men were. Mine would be more into the key people, the the captain, the the first mate, you know, who watched the loading of the ship, the engineer. But then I go more into detail with Jean-Michel Cousteau and all the people who've been involved that have dove the wreck. So it, it's real significant for me. And maybe my last chapter, I, I've done so much on it now that I, I, I do think that there's other stories I need to do. I've got my podcast at shipwreckpodcast.com and I want to put together the Nordmere story, which is a fantastic story that, that really dovetails in with the Daniel J. Morrell, a big storm in 1966. I was lucky to know the survivor from the, when the Morrell went down and the Nordmere, I actually found the pilot that rescued those men. So to get those interviews together, to tell a story that I think people would very much enjoy, but I just need the time to do it. And I think now that the book's done, I can do it. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to reading and I want to pass that info along to all my listeners. And it's something we're definitely going to talk about. Rick, I appreciate the time. I really wanted to track you down and I was hoping you'd be willing to chat for a couple of minutes and it was everything I hoped for. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. So hopefully we'll do it again. That's our guy, Rick Mixter. He has a website. You can look it up. It's Rick, R-I-C, Mixter, M-I-X-T-E-R. Uh, pretty cool guy and a wealth of lots of information. And you can look up a lot of his stuff on YouTube. He's got a lot of lectures. A couple of his documentaries are available just in full on YouTube. And if you want to support him, find a way to buy his stuff. He did send me a copy of Tattletale Sounds. It is pretty cool. Uh, and I learned a lot about the background of the ship and how it actually has a lot of ties to the city of Milwaukee. Uh, and even that family having a tie, as I tweeted about today at Wisco Grant, like a big tie to the Milwaukee Brewers as Edmund Fitzgerald's son, who is also named Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, was one of the founding members and worked with Bud Selig to bring baseball back to Milwaukee in 1970. So there's lots of ties. There's lots of interesting history just other than how the ship went down and the backstory of how a lot of these huge freighters in the 50s and the 60s came to be. It's a really cool story. You should read his book. It's called Tattletale Sounds. We appreciate Rick. Uh, and his time. And I appreciate you guys for talking about something that's not sports for a half hour. Not that we need to talk about the Packers right now. Like, what is there to say? They stink. So it's fun to talk about a little history and something a little different for a half hour. So we're going to get back into the Packers. Mike Clements is going to join us at 530, which I'm excited because we've talked about some drama and some reports. And anytime we start parsing through little unsourced nuggets and quotes, it's nice to then bring in someone who's in the locker room and works with the team to kind of help sift through that stuff and interpret it. So Mike Clements is going to be here in a half hour. Looking forward to that. And who knows? Maybe we'll do this bigger and better next year. Thank you guys for talking about something fun with me. Wisco Sports Show back in two minutes. have many of my teammates. I hope we just dig deep and find a way. We will truly be underdogs. Hopefully we can embrace that and then this thing looks a little different. This is where Wisconsin gathers to talk sports. Packers, Brewers, Badgers, Bucks. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Now, here's your host, Grant Bills. Clement's coming up in a half hour. We're going to talk Packers with him. 
some Packers drama. Maybe not full-fledged Packers drama, not fully grown Packers drama, but seeds of Packers drama. Little little sprouts, little seedlings. Uh, and maybe nothing else comes of it, but the way this Packers season is trending, man, I I mean, you tell me. Do you think this is going to get uglier? Do you think it's going to get better? Do you think it's going to stay the same? If you had to bet on one outcome, I can see things going a little sideways. And you know what? If the team's going to stink, I might as well be entertained. So if you're going to go down... Maybe go down in flames. Maybe I'm not opposed. I understand that's me cheering for the demise of my team. But I like to be entertained. Sports are entertainment. Don't be boring. If you're going to be bad, be hilariously bad. Be bad in an entertaining way. So we're going to talk about some of this Packers drama and the return of Mike McCarthy to Lambeau. Speaking of drama, he'll be back in town to play the Packers on Sunday. 325. couple of texts I want to get to here. Dean and Eau Claire sent me a really good link from a WPR guy who did a segment on the fits out of Eau Claire. I'm going to try to share that on Twitter. Vinny liked the interview. Josh, appreciate the text. Mike from Chippewa Falls says, I was on the USS Leahy in 1978 when we hit a huge rock in Tokyo Bay. The front fifth of the ship was torn off. We went over the rock and nearly capsized. The propellers were also torn up. This was a 500-foot ship. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about how big some of those ships were, and some of them still are. Those freighters, I mean, it was a 700-foot ship that sunk in 500 feet of water. So you think, oh, 500 feet, that's deep. Yeah, until you consider how long the ship was, and it broke in half, right? So if it were to go straight down, it would would stick out of the water, water that deep. That's just insane. And you can't really fathom how big some of those ships are by pictures, Mike. So I feel you. Or stand next to the propeller. You see pictures of these ships being built and you see humans standing next to the propeller. You can actually kind of fathom how big they are. Aaron and Janesville, our Duluth guy, I remember talking to you last year. Corey and Marshall, thanks for the text. Uh, for those who might be interested, I did do another interview, but the show's only two hours and it can't be all, you know, fun and games. Uh, I did do an interview with Bruce Lynn, who's the director of the Great Lake Shipwreck Museum in Whitefish Point. So if you want more content, I have more content. I just only have so much airtime. So I'm going to attach it to the podcast. Um, and that will either hit the feed tonight or tomorrow night. I got some things I'm going to do. We have an event. We're going to Lacrosse Beer House to pregame Thursday night football up on Pearl Street. So you should swing by. Um, but I don't know if I'll get it up tonight, but certainly tomorrow. So you'll have it for the weekend. That interview, uh, a couple more thoughts on the anniversary of the Fitz and an interview with Bruce Lynn who was awesome. Talked about what they do up there at the Shipwreck Museum and, and everything they're about, and he was really cool. I just only have so much airtime. My uh, eyes were bigger than my mouth, or my mouth bigger than my stomach. I don't know what the expression is. This is the Wisco Sports Show. Going to kind of get the train back on the tracks. Let's text or call. Hit me up on the phone, 608-796-2558, as Hector in on Alaska does. Hector, what's going on? Well, first of all, that was absolutely riveting. Wasn't it interesting? I, yeah. I have... I have a paralyzing um, fearsomation, I call it, with water. Yeah. Because it it completely terrifies me, but at the same time, like, I can't get enough of it kind of a thing. Um, So I call it my fearsomation. That's a good word. I I, uh, definitely will be checking out the podcast for the other part of that, but I've never actually, like, looked into that kind of stuff. And so you may have just opened like another uh, doorway to something that's gonna, that I didn't even know I was interested in. I'll, I'll probably be up on YouTube yeah. just watching shipwreck stuff. This is what guys <laughs> do. We go down inexplicable Wikipedia rabbit holes. 
YouTube rabbit holes. Like I like my energy bill for my house is due for like three weeks, and I'm just like, oh, who has time to pay it? Meanwhile, I'm staying up an hour later than I should be, and I'm reading, you know, the Wikipedia page about a lost hiker that got lost in Saskatchewan one time. Like it's my like I'm writing a mm-hmm. thesis on it. Like that's just what guys do. We get obsessed about that right. for no reason. Right. Well, I'll try to help you bring it back to the sports side of it. I was listening to um, Ben Kenny uh, after he took over for Bill Michaels, and that came on at 11 this morning. And they were talking about the Packers, and um, I started thinking about it, and there seems to be a pattern when it comes to Aaron Rodgers, and it's the jealous girlfriend effect. Okay. Um, He had his MVP seasons because Jordan Love got picked up in the draft. Now all of a sudden he's, Oh, MVP Aaron Rodgers. So how about you bench him, let Love go out there a little bit, make Rodgers jealous, and then he could come back and actually do something for once. So you know, I, just I, to I, try I, things out. I get the I get the theory, but man, what a weird situation! What a weird quarterback you would be if that's true. I think Jordan Love getting right. drafted motivated him, but like. How much motivation did you need from, like, a below-average quarterback in 19 to then turn into an That MVP? everyone reached for. Like, they reached for. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, man, like, great, Rodgers, you're motivated by, you know, people that spite you. Could you, could we just get a little bit of motivation just on the daily, just on the regular, without maybe needing to right. draft your replacement? I get what you're saying, the jealous girlfriend, but I don't know. If a, if yeah. a team has to bench their quarterback to get them to play better, man, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think I agree with you still from what you said uh, last week. Let Rodgers play the next two games. After that, when you're really you're not going to make the playoffs, he's going to come back for his fifty million next year. Let Jordan Love go out there and play some games. Maybe get a top five to seven pick. Get a wide receiver so that Rodgers has somebody to work with next year. Kind of a thing. So, yeah. um, and then last week we did also you want you had mentioned wanting to know. I turn. I am turning 28 on Saturday. Okay, and so all of my I'm having a little party, and everyone's coming dressed as a character from Cartoon Network because oh. that was my childhood. Cartoon Network, my favorite. I'll have Jawbreakers, um, oh. all uh, hidden all over the house, and there is one uh, golden Jawbreaker, and that the person that finds that will win. Like I got like this little Cartoon Network. Uh, pack like a little pack bundle I put together with different like shirts and I got like a stuffed ra- uh, plank from Ed Ed and Eddie uh, different stuff like that so should be fun and it's on Saturday night we're gonna do a game night I'm gonna make some pulled pork some buffalo chicken dip um, jello shots maybe some maybe some creme brulee actually because it's can my you, favorite can you like when I get married one day can you plan my wedding for me I'll pay you just, oh, absolutely. Okay. okay. I'm all about that stuff, Grant. My I, uh, my wife isn't really, she doesn't like, she knows how to cook, but she doesn't like to. Okay. Um, probably because I'm so much better at it. And But her maid of honor is a very controlling kind of person, so I didn't get much to do in the uh, wedding. But, yeah, parties, um, weddings, I've planned anniversaries for people, that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, that's my jam. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for the detail. I have an awesome party. You'll need to give me the report on how it goes on Monday or Tuesday next week. Deal? Oh, deal. All right.
Have a good one, Hector. Appreciate you. Yeah, you too. Take care, guys. Yeah, have a good night. That's our guy, Hector, in Alaska. The jealous girlfriend effect with Aaron Rodgers. Now, I don't know about Rodgers. I was on the... I, I, we talked about this for a second yesterday, and I don't remember who I talked about this with. Maybe it was on the Bill Michaels huddle last night. It all starts to run together. I'm kind of worried about Matt LaFleur because I think he is going to get weirded out by McCarthy being there. That's not the jealous girlfriend. This, this is a different effect. I think it's the the ex-boyfriend is at the wedding effect, right? Matt LaFleur, very successful coach so far in his career, should be very confident in his own ability and his own coaching success. He should have no reason to doubt himself, you know, this year notwithstanding, but I think there's issues outside of just Matt LaFleur. I think Matt LaFleur is going to get to the stadium on Sunday and be like, oh, the ex-boyfriend is here. I'm not good enough. I, Mike McCarthy's here. And I think he's going to get weird about it because that's what Matt LaFleur does. He just finds a way to get weird about whoever is on the other sideline, whether they're related, whether they've coached on the same staff, whether they literally were at the same wedding, as was the case with uh, with Robert Salah in the Jets. Like, Matt LaFleur just gets psyched out about things. He's going to get psyched out because it it's going to be like the ex-boyfriend is at the wedding. And we're there. We're supposed to have a good time, do our thing. But he's always kind of looking out of the corner of his eye like, oh, what's he doing over there? I got to keep my eye on him. I think Matt LaFleur is going to be pulling some weird stuff like that. I'm worried about him because he gets psyched out. He overthinks things and he gets freaked out. He gets in his own head. Let's go back to the phone. 608-796-2558. I apologize. Uh, my, my Google Drive isn't loading today, so I don't have my caller ID in front of me, so I can't I can't call you out. Who's this? Welcome to the Wisco Sports Show. Brian, Jeff from Holman. Oh, Jeff from Holman. Oh, Jeff. How you doing? Welcome. I'm doing one thing you don't have to worry about, Grant, is those bucks. Down three starters last night, pulled it out in double OT. No problem. You know, not to, not, oh, my God, not since the days of Paul McKeskey, Paul Pressey, and Randy Brewer in such domination. Wow. Okay, I'm just joking about that. But um, wow. their defense is just, I know, I know. Their defense is just crazy, I got to tell you, man. Um, Giannis and Lopez, uh, it's just, this, this team from years past is their depth. Yeah. You can just tell they have their depth. I mean, they can be down. Like I said, not just one starter, not two. If you count Middleton, they're down three starters. And granted, they big with Bucks got bailed out last night. I don't know what they that foul on Lopez with like yeah. no time remaining. Put him at the line. I, I couldn't believe it, but man, that was crazy last night. I agree with you on that. I, I think the Bucks were also up like ten with a minute and a half. Like both of the both of the right. teams last night won the game and gave the game away like two or three different times. Yeah. Like just what a what a meltdown on both ends, but it was a blast. It was a little March Madnessy and how it was so chaotic and the game never felt right. like truly over. You mentioned the Bucks defense. They learned how to play without Lopez last year. They got so much valuable yep. experience playing smaller. And, and this year, yeah. Jeff, they've started to take away the three-point shot. So they're allowing, when it comes to a portion of opponent shot attempts, uh, being a three-point shot, so, like, take the total amount of shots, what percentage is a three-pointer, they're allowing the seventh Mm -hmm. fewest three-point attempts in the NBA. They were 29th, 30th, last the last couple of years, and they're still protecting the rim. They're still not fouling. They're doing all the good things they've been doing, and now they're defending the three-point line, and it's just, it's a sight to watch. This is a really fun team, and they're so good on defense. Right, and even even Bochamp, he's you know I was I was impressed by him. I didn't you know know a lot about him and everything. Usually, even even number one draft choices, you know, you're like I don't know, but you showing me some stuff last night. But anyway, Grant, I'll hang up and you have a great day, brother. Happy Veterans Day to all my veteran brothers out there too. Yeah, that's right, and thank you for pointing that out. It's a busy week. Yes, absolutely, uh, I agree with you, Jeff. And sorry again, my Google Drive isn't working, so I don't have my caller ID. But you're right. 
the Bucks and Eric Name was on the Low Post earlier this week. If you listen to podcasts, if you like podcasts and you like basketball, um, would recommend the Low Post. It's like my second or third basketball podcast. Like the same with the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorse. It's like, eh, maybe I'll listen. Who's the guest? Do I got anything else I want to listen? No, oh, okay, I'll try it out. Well, Zach Lowe, when he has guests that I like, is great. And he had Eric Name on earlier this week, and they talked about the Bucks defense, and they broke it down. They said they're still doing all the good things. Fourth fewest shots allowed at the rim. They're protecting the paint. They're committing the fifth fewest fouls in the NBA. They're not sloppy. They're not fouling. And they're first in defensive rebounding. They're doing all the things that they've done the last couple of seasons, except now they're not giving up threes. As a portion of opponent shot attempts, they're allowing the seventh fewest three-point attempts in the entire NBA. They have been last or next to last the entire Mike Budenholzer era, where teams could just walk up, take as many above-the-break threes as they wanted. Their fourth or fifth fifth best offensive player could get unlimited, uncontested threes from the corner. They just didn't care. They let you fire, right? They're not doing that this year. And part of that is because Brooke Lopez is back. Brooke Lopez accounts for so much defensively that they don't need to help off the three-point line. And to be fair to Mike Budenholzer, last year they didn't have Brooke Lopez. So they had to play a little differently. Last year, they didn't have that solid, sturdy, dependable rim protector. It's very similar to in football. Right? If you have a strong secondary on the back end, you don't need to blitz with more than four. Right? Because your back end of the coverage is going to hold up. So you can commit extra defenders to a spy or to zone defense. Right? When the Packers defense has been poor, like in 2016, 2016 comes to mind. They would have to get to the quarterback fast because the coverage on the back end wouldn't hold up. Brooke Lopez is like the best corner in the league. He doesn't need help. You don't need to organize the rest of your defense to help him. He can handle the paint. He can handle the rim. Everyone else around Brooke Lopez can do their thing and not worry about Brooke. And it's very similar to when you have a strong corner. Just leave him out on an island. Don't worry about him. You don't need to send extra rushers to get to the quarterback. You don't need to commit uh, a safety to shade that side of the field. No, no, no. He's got it. Don't worry about it. That's Brooke Lopez in the middle. And you don't have to help off the three-point line. And the Bucs aren't helping off the three-point line this year. They're allowing, again, as a portion of opponent shot attempts. So the total number of attempts, that can fluctuate, especially early in the season because the sample size is small. It's very matchup dependent. Some teams shoot lots of threes. Some don't. But as a portion of opponent shot attempts, they're allowing the seventh fewest three-pointers in the NBA, which is a massive changeup from what we saw the last couple of years. But nothing else has changed. They're still sticking to all their great defensive principles the last couple of years, but now they're starting to take away some of those three-pointers. Let's talk to Big Joe. Well, Big Joe just hung up. Hold on. I'm sure he'll call back. Give him a sec. 608-796-2558. Eau Claire Chris says, I know you talked about Lafleur freaking out versus families or guys that he's coached with. Do you think Lafleur is only considered a good coach because Rodgers and Adams handled the offense? Now that Adams is gone and we have new receivers, the plays that are being called are terrible. Um... We've done this before. We've had this conversation a million times. We don't know if the plays that are being called are plays that Rodgers are calling or Lafleur is calling. There's so much adjustment. There's so many audibles. And part of that is good because Rodgers has played for a long time. But as quarterbacks get old and as human beings in general get old, we get stubborn. We like to do things the way we like to do them, even as the world changes around us, right? Hang out with an old person. Great examples. It's like, no, I don't want to use an iPhone. I'm going to use a flip phone. Well, (laughs) in 2022, you know, I I guess you could be stubborn, but the world around you isn't going to cater to you, right? The world changes. Time moves on. Technology advances. 
If you're 70 and you want to be stubborn, okay, but you're going to miss out on things. Quarterbacking is the same way. Aaron Rodgers plays in a much different league with way different scheme, way different personnel than 2010 or even 2014, which is less than a decade ago. Football changes, and I think as quarterbacks age, they get stubborn. They want to do things. They want to do them, even if the personnel around them doesn't fit what they want to do. And the Packers just aren't running an offense right now that's conducive to their personnel. It might be Matt LaFleur. I have a tendency to think based on the last 10 years of precedent and the way we've seen Rodgers play in the past that this is more of a Rodgers thing. I don't, no, no, no. And Eau Claire, Chris, you follow up and say, you said, sorry, I didn't know you talked about this before. I don't even mean me. I mean, we talked about this in 2018, right? This isn't a, this show this week, today. I mean, this has been a thing with Rodgers for years, right? We keep coming back to this as in, is Rodgers calling the plays? Is Mike Clemens calling, is not Mike Clemens, Tom Clemens calling the plays, Matt LaFleur calling the plays. Who was the the guy, was it Tom Clemens who took over play calling for one year? We never know who's calling the plays and how the offense is set up. And I don't mean today, Eau Claire Chris. We've talked about this year after year after year forever because that play call is being lost in translation. It's like a big game of telephone. Let's take a break. Come back in three minutes on the Wisco Sports Show. We'll talk more Packers, more Bucks, whatever you want to hit. And then Mike Clemens is coming up at 530. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills. Mike Clemens coming up in a few Thursday night football tonight. <laughs> It's Panthers-Falcons. See, the last couple of years, the way the NFL has been and the way it's been my whole life, I think, man, this matchup sucks, but the game is going to find a way to be great. In 2022, this season, uh, I I don't know. I don't know that I have faith. Al Michaels certainly doesn't have faith. So we got that going on tonight. I haven't even looked at the NBA schedule. I've been, I've been too shipwreck heavy. I, I, did the Bucks even play last night? Didn't even watch. I was just, I was listening to old radio transcripts of lighthouses. Yeah. Preparing for tonight's show. Big Joe is here. Big Joe in Madison, that is. 608 What's up, Big Joe? Grant, happy Gordon Lightfoot day, buddy. Oh, it's a great, it's a great day to listen to some Gordy, isn't it? You've been listening to Gordy. Yes, it is. Hey, did you see how they picked up a six pack of Evan Fitzgerald? Yeah, so is that stuff any good? I see it's great. I'm looking at your tweet right now. It's greatly really brewery, dark and roasty. Hmm. It is. I've had it uh, down here in the Madison area. We have a bar called Mr. Brew's Tap House. Okay. I've had it. It's really good. Really good. Maybe I'll stop on the way home, stop at little festival foods at the liquor store, see if they have it. Maybe not one that they have at, uh, at the Quick Trip, although Quick Trip's got a pretty awesome beer selection, and they're pretty with it. They so really do, man. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Uh, what I would do, Grant, I Googled it. That's what I did before I bought mine. Gotcha. I am a, I'm, just not a, I'm not a craft beer guy. I don't understand craft beer. Like, when people go places to taste beers, I, I couldn't tell you one beer from the next. I Either I like it or I don't. I can't make a comment right. on colors or flavors or any, like, hints of this and that. It's just It all goes over my head. Oh, I'm with wine. Grant, I'm the, I'm the same way. I'm not a huge fan of an IPA. I'm really not. You're not an IPA guy? I like IPAs because they're strong. If it's cold out, I like a nice IPA. That I'll give you. Okay, okay. 
Uh, believe it or not, Kurt, I actually tried Stone Cold Steve Austin's IPA, and that's actually not bad. Steve Austin with an IPA. That seems like such a paradox. Seems like he'd be a light beer yes. man. Yeah. Stone Cold with an IPA, and it's actually not bad. Well, he's a businessman. All right, well, Big Joe, uh, I, I do got to get your thoughts. Packers, Bucks, we've been talking about both. Do you have a, a strong, just hard rock take for me on either team right now? I will say this about the Bucks. They can win without Giannis, and it's awesome to see. Mm-hmm. And with the Packers, I'm just waving the white flag, man. Like, can we just get the season over with? This is just its too heartbreaking, man. It's not even Thanksgiving, my guy. we That's the thing. We, we're not even to the bye week yet. We, we can't. Like, no, exactly. We, we can't put the, the Packers on the back burner. We need to grapple with this. We need to deal with this. Team. The only thing is, though, I will agree with one of my friends and coworkers. You watch. The Packers this weekend will go out and play the game of their lives, and they'll beat Big Mike in Green Bay. I want to believe that. I do. Just like I want to believe the Brewers aren't about to trade all their good pitchers away. I want to believe it. I just, based on recent events. I I, I didn't call you yesterday about that, too, and I'm just like, it's the Brewers, and given their track record, they will. They'll trade away all their good players. They do have a good farm system because you know that I love going to minor league games. It's just the Brewers are going to trade away all their prospects, too. God, I'm going to rant about the Brewers for a couple minutes before I get to Mike Clemens because I got something to get off my chest. Big Joe, I appreciate you. Hey, recommend and Fitzgerald, buddy. I'll play out. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I poorly organized my sound. Well, uh, we'll play it going to commercial. Sorry, Big Joe. <laughs> the Brewers, by the way, I just want to say one thing about the Brewers because I, was, I wasn't mixing it up with Mike Heller on Twitter last night, but I had a little back and forth. Normally, I'd... Normally, I don't argue with people on Twitter. I wouldn't say we were arguing, but I saw our guy, David Gasper, tweeting with his coworker, Mike Heller, who's on some other stations. A little bit of a competitor, but what are you going to do? I saw him tweeting about the Brewers last night, and Mike Heller is basically saying, well, if you're not going to re-sign Corbin Burns, you don't want to lose him for nothing. So you might as well get something for him now. That's such a... And by the way, Mike Heller's not the only one who says this. So I'm not anti-Mike Heller. I listen to his show. Seems like a great guy. Love his takes. Harmless enough. I hear this a lot from Brewers fans when they're like, well, you got to get something for him. Hey, do you know what the something is? The something is let's win a lot of games for the next two years. Let's get into the playoffs and make some noise. Let's try to win a World Series. That's the something. We're not losing him for nothing because we get to keep him on the team for another two years. Who knows? The world's probably going to fall apart in the next two years. Trade away Corbin Burns now. For what? For for a, a minor league all-star like Asteria Ruiz and a pitcher we're going to DFA a couple of days later? Pass. No, thanks. It's a loser mentality. It's a small market mentality, and we have to shake it. We need to get rid of that attitude of, oh, we got to uh, we, we get something for him now while we can. No, no. The something is we're going to win a lot of games. If the Brewers ever, you know, want to apply themselves and try to contend for once in their miserable existence. Let's take a break. I got to shut down the phones. Wish we could talk more, but we can't. I'm glad we got to hear from Big Joe because I saw Big Joe tweeting pictures of beer and, and he's all about the Edmund Fitzgerald show. So I'm glad we got him in. But I got to shut down the phones. We're going to take a break. Get Mike Clemens on the horn. Come back. Talk Packers. The return of Mike McCarthy coming up next on the Wisco Sports Show. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. I think that's the challenge of the of the National Football League because nobody really cares about what you're going through, what the circumstances are. You're expected to win, especially here. So we know we're going against a great 
opponent, one of the best teams in the National Football League. Uh, they're very well-rounded, got great coaches, great players, uh, great scheme, and so it's going to be quite a challenge. Wisco Sports Show, that's Matt LaFleur, Packers head coach. You notice themes in press conferences, right, over the course of a season. Coaches like to use cliches. Mike McCarthy, the classic, it's like anything, which doesn't really mean, I don't don't know what that means, but he says it all the time. Matt LaFleur, it's, you got to be better. It starts with me, blah, blah, blah. And something I hear both from Rodgers and LaFleur, nobody's going to feel sorry for us. No one cares what we're going through. Oh, interesting. I don't know what that means either. It's just something we hear a lot in these press conferences. Press conferences of which Mike Clements attends and participates. Mike Clements is here. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Grant. How are you, sir? I am doing well. We've had a fun show today. We've talked a little Bucks, a little Packers. We did a little history. We talked about the anniversary of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So we've covered a lot of ground on tonight's show up until this point. So it was the anniversary of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I was listening to the big station in Chicago, WGN. Mm -hmm. And I was driving along Lake Michigan at about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, coming only from a late-night radio show I was doing. And there was these rocks being thrown into Lakeshore Drive in Milwaukee. The waves are really high. And I thought, well, this is weird. And I started kind of tuning around, you know, for some weather and stuff late on the radio at night. And I heard in Chicago this all-night guy uh, his name was Eddie Schwartz. He said, this is really a bad storm. This is unique. He said, let's call the Coast Guard. And so he talked to a guy in the northern part of like Lake Michigan um, who's worked all around the five Great Lakes. And he said, how bad is this storm? He goes, this is pretty bad. And he says, uh, you know, how bad was it when the Edmund Fitzgerald went down? He says, I was working that night. Oh, Really? And he says, uh, well, how bad was it that night compared to this stuff that's throwing rocks up on the shores in Milwaukee and here in Chicago in the city? Yeah. Huge boulders. He said, well, you know, Eddie, you know, tonight we've got wave swells of anywhere from 9 to 12 feet, you know, and a wind coming out of the west at 40 or 50 miles an hour. He said, the night that the Edmund Fitzgerald was down, we had wave swells of 30 to 33 feet. Eesh. Eesh. Can you imagine being out on the water with waves that big? Well, and you look at some of the the stats of these big storms on the Great Lakes over the years. They're hurricanes, Mike. They are like ice hurricanes with wind yeah. wind gusts of yeah, it's insane. And that's just rocks getting thrown up on shore. That's just a casual, you know, rough night for the Great Lakes. Nothing over the top. Just you know, run of the mill. Jeez. Those twenty nine guys never had a chance. And when you're in Detroit, like we were last weekend, the church where they had this ceremony for them afterwards is right downtown, and there's still a bell that's out in front of that church that they rang Mm -hmm. when they had that ceremony, and there was a little clip in the paper about it, and that's Gordon Lightfoot saw that story and started digging more, and that's why he wrote the song. You know, back in the day, we used to write songs about things like that. We don't do that anymore. You know, battles or shipwrecks or, you know, great nights back in the day. Like, that's what music used to be. Gordon Lightfoot is a throwback. Even in 1975, he was a throwback in that regard. But, yeah, that's I, – and I appreciate that story. And that's why radio is cool. You get storytelling like like you were talking about what that night you were listening. I love radio. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, speaking of shipwrecks. Yeah. I was going to say, the three and six Packers, yeah, totally. Um, you know, when you hear from Matt LaFleur, you're kind of getting, you know, the big headline. 
And when you talk to the assistant coaches like we just did about an hour ago, you try and get a little bit into the detail. And sometimes you get a little bit more straightforward answer because this stuff is not going to play on ESPN or on the NFL Network, but it plays a little bit better for us locally. So, you know, you're talking to Adam Stenovich, offensive coordinator. This is his first year as an offensive coordinator. What's the biggest problem with your offense right now? In, you know, scoring nine points against the 32nd-ranked defense like the Lions were in Detroit? I would say the biggest thing that we need to do is once we get to the 30-yard line, we need to come away with points. And we really have done a poor job with that for a multitude of reasons, turnovers, penalties, errors that just keep us out of field goal range or keep us from scoring touchdowns. Um, and obviously, got to score points to win. And we've really struggled with that the last four or five weeks now you're around the team and you're watching them much more closely than I am and you're in the locker room Nathaniel Hackett was so good I mean it wasn't the red zone it was the gold zone right and they they had a thing and in the last two years they were so good in the red zone at converting red zone trips and opportunities to touchdowns what's changed this year and have the changes Mike is that have anything to do with Nathaniel Hackett to Adam Stenovich I'm beginning to think that okay I really am. Stenovich, you know, I gather is a very smart guy. Hackett, though, is a you know outs- uh, a, a unique, uh, boisterous <laughs> personality that made things fun. And you know, you do this is teaching. You have to install this stuff. And football is more in the classroom sometimes than it is on the practice field these days. Yeah. Uh, about the Lions' loss, you know, the the throw to David Bakhtiari. I, you know, really inexplicable when you come right down to it. Yeah. You know, here's a guy with this leg injury that has to take off the you know third quarter and then comes back. You know, have that have that play that reward play when you're up by 21. Okay. Sure. But when you're an offense that still doesn't have an identity, and you should be playing their percentages and you should be playing to win. Even though I'm I've been a proponent, I've been asking Stenovich about maybe you should run the wildcat. Maybe you should you know, try some other things to spark this, you know, here they tried. And then the quarterback somehow misses uh, a short throw to his best buddy in Bakhtiari. But the, the real killer play is those last four plays. Aaron Rodgers has got the ball in his hands, less than two minutes, a timeout or so. And instead of just, you know, moving the chains or getting even closer for what could have been the winning touchdown. And then you give Mason Crosby to kick a PAT, which will win the game by one point. They just took four shots non-distinct plays, and they tried to throw one to Sammy Watkins, who broke in instead of out and, and misread it. So we talked to Sammy Watkins today and said, what happened on that play? He goes, I missed the read. I missed the read. And then he, he, he picked at his shoulder and said, I, I missed the signal that it was she, I should change it to a fade. Now, did, remember I talked to you about the Giants game? And the TV version, and Mark Sanchez, the former quarterback, yeah. was the color man. Yep, yep. And Rodgers had the ball you know, with the game on the line against the Giants' defense. He tried to flip one to the outside and got batted down, mm-hmm. and that was like the end of the game. Do you Lazard. remember that play? Yeah, the one to Al Lazard on the right side, yeah. To Lazard, great recall. So then they go to the replay, and Mark Sanchez says, see, there's the signal. And they zoom in on Aaron Rodgers' right shoulder. He picks up his jersey like he's trying to straighten it out. And what he's signaling is, I'm going to throw to the right. And you see him do that all the time, like he's trying to straighten out his jersey. No, that's right before the snap and the shotgun. That's the signal, we're going right. 
we're going right. Well, how did Mark Sanchez know that? Honestly, I mean, if he's that smart, he might still be playing or coaching. And, uh, you know, I think Wink Martindale, their, their defensive coordinator, told them that in the production meeting. Yeah. So here's Sammy Watkins in front of six reporters this afternoon picking at his shoulder. Like, they still haven't changed that signal. <sighs> Do you understand that? Yeah. I, I just, the most frustrating part is, like, Sammy Watkins, <clears throat> excuse me, as a veteran has to be better, but I think I'm just disappointed in, like, why Why are we trusting him? Why are we throwing him the ball with the game on the line? Why are we expecting him to run the correct route? Because last couple of weeks when he's been out there, he hasn't run the correct route. You've got, you've got Mark Sanchez finding their tendencies and their signals on the NFL network, man, yeah. and circling it, saying, look, that's a tendency. I mean... So you go to Stanovich this afternoon and you say, you know, mistakes, mistakes like that with Sammy Watkins missing that TD pass in the corner of the end zone. You know, what can you do to correct these mental errors? Yeah, that's that's probably been one of the most frustrating things about the season is, you know, you try and address things that have been going wrong um, and whether it doesn't get fixed or something new pops up, you know, that unforeseen errors and, um, yeah, that, that's one of those things where if you're a wide receiver with Aaron Rodgers, you have to be ready for adjustments. And that's why those guys have to be so locked in and just on the same page. And when you're not, obviously, we're not clicking on all cylinders. So um, that's an example right there of us just not being on the same page. So we just got to keep working at it, keep drilling it. Um, and just be better. The anyone, anyone, did it work? Anyone, anyone, anyone seen this before? Anyone know what this says? Bueller, Bueller. What's so frustrating, Mike, is that this defense in Detroit is so bad, and they moved the ball at times so easily. I, I just hate that we're talking about this game coming down to Sammy Watkins not seeing Rogers pick his jersey. It never should have came down to that. I mean, where's the where's the energy for this offensive coordinator, Grant? I mean, well, maybe that's maybe that was their silver bullet with Hackett. He was just someone who had some life. Like maybe it wasn't even about the scheme. Maybe it was just he had some energy, and that just made these guys play a certain way. Okay, so is Aaron Rodgers, Mister Complicated? Yeah. Is he making all these changes at the line of scrimmage because you know he doesn't want to throw a pick? And, you know, you've got to keep up with him. Is he making all these changes? at the? Wouldn't it be easier if he just ran the play as it was in the playbook so that those young receivers or a new guy like Sammy Watkins that has a lot of snaps with him understands what the play is before the snap? Here's what Aaron says. I think it has been by the book a bunch. I think that's where, you know, maybe you have the ideas a little bit off. It has been very by the book. I think the struggle has been... How do we make it by the book but not robotic? You know, when it's robotic, uh, it, you know, unless you have a perfect s- scheme that's paired up with the perfect defense for that scheme, it's not going to be open. So I think that's where, um, you know, the little details come in where we're not trying to be robotic. Obviously, we're trying to run the plays by the book. We're not going way outside the offense. I'm not going way outside the offense um, unless we're in a two-minute situation and there's something that I've seen that... that that I'm calling that that uh, you know might be an ode to years past based on uh, the look the looks that we're getting, but we're not going outside the offense. We just we're a little too robotic at times, I think, and then the details on some of the things 
aren't showing up consistently. Um, Mike, I just, I don't know if I buy that. I, I have a hard time believing that Matt LaFleur's offense sucks this much. <laughs> I guess that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, if this is by the book, then the book really sucks. And I don't think the book sucks. So I'm not inclined to believe Rodgers when he says this is the most by the book offense they've ever run. We tried, we talked to Rodgers for a half hour last yeah. night. He came late from his meeting. And he insisted, yeah, I know we ran the motion stuff the year one in year two. But right now, I mean, you know, we need we need to dumb it down. We need to keep it keep it simple. And the other thing with the motion stuff, as Aaron Rodgers claims, like you would see Sean McVay run all the time with the Rams, is he calls it it gets to be a little robotic. Like you're not really, you know, Rodgers still sometimes is playing basketball instead of football. He yeah. likes to react to players and 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 motions and turns and things. And he wants guys to think like they're bringing the ball down the court. And so he says that sometimes those triple fakes and the jet sweep and all that kind of stuff, that can tend to be easier for those linebackers to read once they get into the rhythm of it as opposed to just, you know, react to the route and the change and that kind of stuff. So to be more natural. On defense, losing Rashawn Gary is just huge. And especially, as I've told you before, the story, we were at the Combine, and there was no word on Zadarius Smith coming back, and he'd missed most of the whole season with the back injury and the yep. surgery. Yep. And I asked Gutekinst, so, you know, uh, what's your plan at outside linebacker? Well, we got Rashawn Gary, and we got Preston Smith, and, you know, Jonathan Garvin, I mean, he, he's coming along. Well, that was a seventh-round pick three years ago out of Miami. That guy was a healthy scratch a couple of weeks ago, and now you've lost Rashawn Gary. Where's the depth right now? And so we just talked to Joe Barry about they've been throwing in the rookie, Kingsley and, and Aguari, JJ, as they call him. Uh, and how's he, how's, this kid's probably going to get the start against, along with Preston to rush Dak Prescott. You know, he's been improving, you know. Um, I think, you know, he's a young kid, you know, that we brought in as a rookie, and um, I think we threw him into the fray, you know. But every week he's been getting a little bit better. Every week he's been playing a little bit more. Obviously now, you know, he's going to have to play even more with, with the absence of Rashawn. But, um, you know, we talk about daily improvement with every guy, but, you know, especially rookies when they come in and, you know, you look to maybe have a, a minor role for them and then they get, have to get thrust into more of a major role. Um, he's definitely going to get opportunities. Why isn't Jonathan Garvin playing a bigger role this year? Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's uh, it's a number of things. You know, he's he's uh, you know he's a rotational player for us. You know, obviously he uh, again another guy with with uh, Kingsley's with JJ's you know availability going to get bumped up with with uh, um, Rashawn's absence. Same thing will happen to be with Garvin. So, you know, we're, we're going to – those guys are definitely going to get opportunities to, to play and make plays and, and, you know, play a big role for us, hopefully. This man sounds defeated, first and foremost, Mike Clemens. But second of all, when you ask, you know, why, why is Jonathan Garvin playing? And your answer is, uh, he, he's, a, he's a rotational player. Yeah. I mean, that means he's not very good. That's why he's not playing, right? Right. Yeah. And anything coming behind that is practice squad guys. Yes, yes. Uh, Where's the team at right now? They haven't won a game since October 2nd. They lost in London to the Giants and the Jets and Washington. And Rasul Douglas uh, put it this way. We've been losing because we've been losing, if that's what you're asking. We suck because we suck. It ain't got nothing to do with London, 
since we not executing them, we keep doing the same thing every week. And that's just how it's been. Up on the Giants, 20, whatever, loss. The Jets, we did good, loss. So it's just, just games, just, we keep playing too hard. Last week, Buffalo. Second half, we played great. First half, trash. Last week, same thing. And it's just, it has to come to a point where we can do, we can play more than two quarters. This year, we haven't. We suck because we suck. We do the same thing every week. Um, I don't know if he intended for these comments to be, you know, read between the lines, but I'm going to read them between the lines. That seems like he's not really uh, about what everyone's doing. Maybe he's not with what the coaches are preaching, with the way his teammates are being. He just, it doesn't seem like he's all about everything that's going on. All right. Yeah. All right. So, so that's it there. I mean, that's you know, pretty much the state of affairs. They yeah. signed a Jonathan Abrams guy. Uh, Abram, he's from uh, Mississippi State. When Luke Getze, who's now the offensive coordinator for the Bears, but has been your receivers and a quarterback coach in Green Bay, he had gone down there to become an offensive coordinator. He was around that kid in 2019 when he got uh, drafted. Uh, and there's some other players. Who, well, Elton Jenkins was down there, too. So even though he was a first-round pick from the Raiders and they waived him yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, as they s- seem to continue to clean their roster out of Mike Mayock as the GM draft picks, um, you know, people are, they'll write about it today and they're getting a little bit excited. But to me, you know, it's another body that, uh, along with Keyshawn Nixon, who's who's done well that they, since they yeah. brought him in, you know, kick returns and playing corner. Keyshawn says, no, he's going to be fine for us. He'll help us out. Uh, actually, that's my best friend from my days at the Raiders. So he's excited they brought him on. And really, that's the only other development that's you know going well, on here right Mike, now. Mike, when you have one first-round draft pick safety from 2019 that's underwhelming, you should really get two first-round draft pick <laughs> safeties from 2019 that are underwhelming. Maybe together they will create one competent safety. There's a story coming out on Darnell Savage. What's the deal with you know like that that whiff on Josh Allen? Yeah, you know who's 20 yards out and running down the left-hand side, and up you know getting to the pylon. And 26 just didn't even try. He just blew past them. Yeah. Yeah, there's five guys down there in that end of the field in the Buffalo game. Uh, so uh, look for some a story on Savage coming out in the papers this weekend. Sure. Pay attention to that. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It looks like he's lost all confidence. Like a baseball player when they get the yips and they're just at a bad slump at the plate. That's what Darnell Savage looks like right now. It's like you, you don't think of tackling like hitting, but... It is something repeatable that you do, and he just seems in a rut where it's just not clicking for him right now. So um, that's it. it. You know, the, the there's a lot of juice in the game, I think, with McCarthy coming back. McCarthy's birthday is today, by the way. Oh, happy birthday. Um, Rogers told a tremendous story last night about, you know, do you remember the day that uh, McCarthy was fired from Green Bay after that loss to the Cardinals here at Lambeau Field? And he said, yeah, it was my birthday. It was his birthday. Uh, he said, you know, I was invited to a house with a bunch of friends. They're putting, putting on a dinner party and a cake and stuff. And, you know, I just found an hour before that, you know, our head coach just got fired. The guy's been here since I was 22 years old. And it's like, wow, this is, this is really happening now. <laughs> you know, yeah. what's going to happen next to everybody on this team moving forward? So I remember that. But, you know, I'll tell you what. Yes. You know, in terms of. They, Twenty twenty two could be a bump in the road. I mean, in in two thousand five, you got Favre, 
do I come back? Okay, I'll come back. And you got a new GM, Ted Thompson. He's cleaning house on the roster, starting with the offensive line, and you go four and twelve. They fire Mike Sherman, and then they bring in Mike McCarthy, who starts out four and eight, but then they get on a run and they get eight and eight. The next year they go thirteen and three, and Favre almost takes them to the Super Bowl, except he throws the pick against the Giants. And then in two thousand eight. Uh, Rogers takes over. He's got he's got injuries at the offensive tackle. They they are close, but they lose a lot of games by one point. They go six and ten, and then in two thousand nine they get to the playoffs, and in twenty ten they win the Super Bowl. So there can be these bumps in the road. You can go to the playoffs in the NFC Championship game three years in a row, like Lafleur has, have a bump in the road, and still rebound the next year we'll see i hope that's what we're hoping for mike enjoy packers cowboys it should be fun having mccarthy back it should be a nice moment hopefully the game gives us something juicy and better than we've seen the last couple weeks i appreciate you mike thank you thank you grant that's our guy we love him mike clemens on twitter at mike clemens nfl you hear him on all of our shows you hear his updates he's just grinding all the time and we appreciate his coverage let's take one last break wrap up the wisco sports show next this is the wisco sports show with grant bill's on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show. That's it for the show. Tomorrow we're going to have fun. We'll preview some more Packers Cowboys. Maybe find some fun Mike McCarthy sound bites. We'll have fun tomorrow. If you're in Lacrosse, stop by Lacrosse Beer House, Third and Pearl. We're gonna slug some beers. Probably gonna have a brat. We can vent about the Packers. I'll be there until 7:30. So stop by. Thank you for listening. I'll have more Edmund Fitzgerald content on the podcast feed. Just search Wisco Sports Show. Talk to you tomorrow at four. With the load of iron ore, twenty-six thousand tons more.